Let's go. Welcome everybody in the room. Everybody tuning in online at all of our 13 Ports Live locations, Ports Scottsdale, the two indie locations, and Boise, Idaho, and Des Moines. Welcome, and all the other locations, everybody tuning in just online. We are continuing the series, Scandals, looking at some of the sinners that were a part of the family tree that led to Jesus being on the planet. And let me start with a story that'll give us some traction. I, for most of my life, had no idea who my great-grandparents were. And I don't mean I never met them. I mean, I didn't know who they were. And why? Because my grandfather was adopted. And he was adopted in like stork fashion. Basically, 100 years ago, if you got pregnant and you weren't going to have the baby, you would just leave it on the doorstep of someone in town or a doctor. And this was small town Kansas. And that's how my grandfather basically got adopted. He was dropped off on a doctor's doorstep. So for most of his life and for most of my life and just our family's life, we had no idea who were we really related to. Until my Uncle Randy, and Uncle Randy is probably the person, I feel like this person's kind of in everyone's family. He's like the most like Kramer from Seinfeld person I've ever met in my life. He's an artist for a living and makes most of his art with recyclables. So basically my aunt is his sugar mama and Uncle Randy was like, I'm gonna track down and figure out who this person is. And he doesn't use (laughs) ancestry.com. He's out there, man. So you go into his house and he's got like a spider web of pictures on the wall with different connections where he was going to track down and figure out who dropped off and who were the actual biological parents of my grandfather. And he tracked people down and he, uh, you can throw that up there. He, uh, he tracked people down. He did interviews. He called people. He put eBay alerts for any, any postage stamp that was out there that used their zip code. I mean, Randy clearly had way too much time on his hand, but he eventually found it and he found a picture and he found out who our biological great-grandparents were. And this is Rex and Faye, and he tracked down that basically this was a high school pregnancy in small town Kansas in the early 19-teens. Think like World War I. And what happened when someone would get pregnant at that time, or either they would immediately get married, or they would give the child up for adoption, basically kind of well-to-do family, or like the local town mayor decided who was his father, or Rex's father, so we're going to give this child up for adoption. And so my grandfather went through his entire life not knowing who he was related to because even still to this day, that side of the family, they ended up not getting married and married other people. They never connected with their son. And what is that a reflection of? It's just kind of human nature that generally speaking, we're not quick to move to the forefront if there's scandals in the family tree unless you're Matthew writing about Jesus. In other words, when we look through the lineage of Jesus, unlike today where people would have a scandal or young teen pregnancy and they kind of cover it up and you don't really hear much about that, Matthew sets out and begins to write the lineage of Jesus, the savior of the world. And the people that he talks about, it's astounding that God included them in the family line of Jesus. But it's also astounding that Matthew highlights them in the family line of Jesus. And so we're working week by week and looking at some of the scandals that were involved. Last week, J.D. set us up and we talked through a sex scandal that involved Judah and Tamar, basically a father-in-law sleeping with his daughter-in-law. Yeah, that's in the Bible. It would make Game of Thrones blush. And this week, we're going to look at another person that has a story, that has a past, that had a profession that was among the lowest of low in her society. 
And so I'm going to read through in Matthew chapter 1, which is where the lineage of Jesus, it's the part that generally people skip over when they go right into the Gospels. We're going to look at another name and then read her story. Because this woman would be the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. She was in the bloodline. So I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to read these verses and then go and move over to this woman's story. Because last week we talked about how our past is not a problem for God. But this woman had a present. And we see how God pursued, related to, interacted with this woman in the midst of her sin and circumstances. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. So you can check that out, message we did last week. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram, probably the greatest guy. That is like a nose tackle name, Ram. It's amazing. Ram was the father of Amenadab. It's not a nose tackle name. Amenadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. It's not salmon, people. <laughs> it's not. I know you think it's salmon. It's not. Don't, don't do that. Somebody over here, he's like, oh, salmon. He thinks it's salmon. <laughs> it's trout, too, and tilapia. Nope, it is salmon, who is the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now, if you grew up in church, you're familiar with Rahab. Or you may be, but Rahab had a, not just a past, she had a present. She carried a label. And we're going to look and walk through her story. It's in Joshua chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, you can flip over to Joshua chapter 2. And let me set up what's going on. So the nation of Israel was in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. And God shows up, and you probably saw the movie, The Prince of Egypt, greatest song track of all time. And God goes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. Eventually, after 10 plagues, he lets them go. They wander around with Moses leading them in the desert for 40 years, and Moses passes away. And God says, Joshua is going to take over. This would have been like George Washington passing away, and John Adams or whoever came after next takes over, and that's Joshua. And God says, Joshua, you are going to lead my people into the promised land, the land that I've said, this is where you are going to live. It's where the nation of Israel is today. But in order for that to happen, they had to go in and basically conquer all these evil tribes of people that were there, namely a group called the Canaanites. And the Canaanites had this one city that was one of the, moder- or one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was a city called Jericho. Jericho was known for these enormous walls that were 10 feet wide and 27 feet tall. It was a fortified city that people would travel just to come see because it was such a, a spectacular thing. And Joshua is told that you guys are going to take out the city of Jericho. And so Joshua decides, man, we've got to send out some spies in order to kind of scout out and see what's happening. And those spies go, and here's where the story picks up. So Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israel camp at Acacia Grove. He instructed them, scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men set out, and they came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab. And they stayed there that night. But someone told the king of Jericho, some Israelites 
have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out the men who've come into your house, for they've come here to spy out the whole land. Now, if you read that and you wonder, why wouldn't the king just have somebody bust down the door and go in there? Well, Rahab is a prostitute. And one thing you never know about prostitutes is who else is in that room that you may be busting in. So they don't bust in. They knock on the door and say, hey, we think that there's two spies that are in here. And Rahab says, yes, the men were here earlier, verse 4, but I didn't know where they were from. They left town at dusk as the gates were about to close. I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you can probably catch up with them. Actually, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them beneath bundles of flax, basically these cloth or fabrics that had been laid out. So the king's men went looking for the spies along the road leading to the shallow crossings of the Jordan River. As soon as the king's men had left the gate, the gate of Jericho was shut. So she, basically, she lies to the king and says, yeah, they were here, but they went somewhere that direction. If you really hurry, I bet you can go catch them. And then she goes back up to where she had hidden them on the roof and covered them with fabric. She says this. I know that the Lord, verse 8, has given you this land. We are all afraid of you. Everyone in Jericho is living in terror. For we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River. She references a battle or battles that had just happened earlier whose people you left completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord, your God, is the supreme God of heavens above and earth below. How did she know all this? Well, if you're a prostitute and you have men constantly coming through your brothel, There's going to come times where just in the midst of after servicing men, selling your body for sex, you make casual conversations. She probably knew as much information as anybody that wasn't in the army. And she had heard about what God had done, and she's asking these soldiers, like, were you there? God God parted the Red Sea? Were you there? Did it really happen that you came in and you guys just destroyed these other kingdoms? And the men are saying it's true. And she says, everyone here is in terror of you. And she believed and expresses her faith that your God, and this time everybody had different gods. Canaanites had their own gods. And she says, your God is the one true God. And then she asked them for a favor. Swear to me by the Lord, you will be kind to me and my family since I have helped you. Give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you will let me live along with my father and my mother and brothers and sisters and their families. We offer our own lives as a guarantee for your safety. The men agreed, if you don't betray us, we will keep our promise and be kind to you when the Lord gives us the land. So she agrees. She basically sends them on their way and puts down a rope for them to go escape. And it says, verse 17, before they left, the men told her, we bound ourselves to the oath we have taken only if you follow these instructions. When we come into the land, into Jericho, we must leave the scarlet, or you must leave the scarlet rope, this red rope, hanging from the window through which you let us down. 
All of your family members, your father, mother, brothers, and all of your relatives must be inside the house. If they're outside of the house, basically we can't guarantee the protection, but put this red rope in the window so we will know this house uniquely will be protected and everybody that's inside of it. She agreed to their terms. The men went off. They went back to Joshua and they said, everyone in the city is terrified because God, they know, has given us the land. Oh, it's, it's an amazing story. It's kind of a fascinating and bizarre story. Why would that be so important and relevant and that Matthew would say, I have to include Rahab in the lineage of Jesus. I'm going to highlight her in, in the lineage of Jesus. Well, I think there's several things that we learn about God in Rahab's story. In fact, we learn about God and we learn about our story because there's parallels to, way, to ways in which Rahab's story is you and I's story. And I want to walk through three observations as it relates to this story. The first one is that God runs after people with labels. God runs after people with labels, with reputations. Like, Rahab had a label, a label that followed her all throughout the Bible. Almost every single time that she's mentioned except one, it says, Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the prostitute. Rahab had a label that carried around and it was reflective of her profession, of her sin. She had, in the midst of a culture the Canaanite culture, candidly, makes ISIS look tame. I mean, this child sacrificed the evil and atrocities, and inside of that culture, she had chosen the profession, for whatever reason, of being a prostitute. I don't know why, and it doesn't tell us why. My guess is she didn't grow up as a little girl dreaming of being a prostitute. But she had to find a way to make ends meet and to pay for things, and so she began selling her body for sex. And that label was attached to her, Rahab the prostitute. And God sends two men in that city. They didn't know they were going to bump into her, but God did because God seeks after people with labels. The reason this is so important is in some ways all of us have a label. You came in and you may not think about it that way, but there's ways in which there's sin in your life that reflects a label, maybe of a past decision you made, something you've never told anybody about. And if you were honest, you feel like, man, there's just some labels that I carry around that are attached to me. Decisions that I made in college, dating relationships I used to have, addictions that I can't break. And Rahab's story showcases the true God who is there, chases after and pursues people with labels. My uh, girl on my team has this machine, it's called a label maker. It's actually pretty amazing. I personally have never used one before, but organized people, this is your thing. And you can create labels that allow you to, you know, put on whatever papers or documents or anything you want, different labels. And there's labels that I think if we were honest, some of us carry around. And it feels like they define us. And Rahab's story shows us there's a God who seeks, pursues, and replaces labels. What do I mean by labels? I mean things like I'm Alex the bulimic, and nobody knows, but it's a label you carry, and you have carried, and you kind of think you're going to carry it your whole life. Maybe it's a label like Andrew the unwanted, just relationship after relationship. If it's taught me anything, it's that I am not wanted. I'm damaged goods. No one wants to be with me, and there's a label that you've 
embraced or that's attached. Maybe it's Sam, the alcoholic. And it went from, man, I was just partying and I was a fraternity brother. And now I can't go more than a couple days. I'm drinking all the time just to numb some of the pain. Maybe it's Susie, the one night stand. You would never say it like that, but somewhere in your heart, you think, nobody wants a relationship with me. The closest I can get is giving my body away. It's a label. Maybe it's Kristen, the abused. Something happened and it wasn't your fault, and you still carry pain and scars. Maybe even believe lies and that label you feel like is so attached. Maybe it's the label of, man, I'm just depressed. I can't get out of the season. I don't know if I'll ever get out of it. Maybe it's a porn addiction that, man, I, I just need to get married because I'll never be able to conquer this. And you have bought into this idea of labels. And Rahab's story, just as we enter into it, I want to showcase is that God pursues people with labels. He could have chose anybody to be the great, great, great grandmother of Jesus. And he chooses a woman with as clear of a label as anybody in the Bible. Now it begs the question, why would Matthew go out of his way to highlight this? Well, if you remember, Matthew had a label. You remember it? Matthew the tax collector. Matthew was an outcast of society. Matthew's the one right in the lineage of Jesus. And he was, by an outcast, I mean tax collectors were seen as people who God had totally given up on. They were not welcome to go to church. They were not welcome to meet with a rabbi. They weren't welcome in society. They betrayed their own people in order to tax them and make money off of them. They were seen as people who clearly didn't believe in God because of the lifestyle they lived. And Matthew lived, and he was Matthew the tax collector, until one day he meets Jesus. And Jesus walks up to him, and he'd never talked to a rabbi before. Rabbis didn't talk to tax collectors, but this one did. And he walks up in Matthew chapter 9, and we're told he walks up to the booth or to the desk that Matthew is taxing his fellow country, fellow countrymen. And he says, Matthew, come follow me. I want you to be my disciple. Matthew had never had anybody want him to be around. And so we're told that he gets up in Matthew chapter 9. They went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew. He said, follow me. And Matthew got up and he followed him. It makes all the sense in the world that Matthew, as he's writing this story, includes this woman who had a label because Matthew had a label. And she wasn't just the part of the story. She was the point of the story that he was about to write for the next 27 chapters in the book of Matthew, that our God seeks and runs after people who have labels, who have pasts, who have present sin that mark them. My friend, his name is Shane, and eight years ago, when we were looking to buy a house, he, uh, he was telling us just basically his advice I'm about to tell it to you right now. My wife and I were looking to buy a house, and he was like, bro, here's what you need to do, okay? If you're balling on a budget, I'm going to help you out. You want to find the house 
that nobody wants. He said, I only buy foreclosures. I go to the bank, I find the foreclosures, and the house that you want is the house that makes everybody else be like, nope, oh, hard pass. The house that has foundation problems. The house, if it's got mold, how much mold? You want the mold. You want house that's so dysfunctional, it scares everybody away so that you can get it for a price that's like, oh, 75 cents, sold. That's the house that you're looking for. The house that everyone else says, oh, no, no way, there's dead people, or they died in here. That's what you're looking for, bro. And I was thinking about that this week. And in some ways, that's a reflection of the God in the Bible. He's looking for the people that society, that the world, that if you feel like you're too far gone and too broken and too messed up, that makes you the perfect candidate for the grace of God. The great-great-grandmother of Jesus is selling her body for sex. And God says, she's in the family line. That's exactly the type of person he's looking for. In fact, it makes you a better candidate because a lot of people think the labels they carry is I'm Barry the Bible reader, I'm Barry the good guy, or I'm you know, the type of person that God does want a relationship with because I've done everything right. And the mindset of a person that will be able to have a relationship with God, somebody that understands, I, I carry labels whether I want to or realize it, but God seeks after those who are labeled or have labels. And not just that, he does something else. Verse 20. So after the city falls, in other words, they go back to Je- Joshua and God says, hey, here's the plan. You're gonna walk around the city. It's a really unconventional plan. We don't have time to go into fully, but he says, for seven days, you're gonna get the marching band. You guys are gonna walk around the city of Jericho seven times. And then on the seventh day, you're gonna walk around it seven times. And at the seventh time, you're gonna yell, play the trumpets, get the trombone going, and the walls are gonna fall. And it happens. Verse 20. When the people heard the sound of the rams and the horns, they shouted as loud as they could. Suddenly, the walls of Jericho collapsed. And we're told by archaeology, the walls actually fell outward. Why is that significant? Because walls, if something imploded, it would fall inward. They fell outward as it was an act of God, creating ramps for the Israelite army to walk, run up into. Israelites charged into town and captured it. They completely destroyed everything in it with their swords, men and women, young and old, cattle and sheep, goats and donkeys. And Joshua said to the spies, keep your promise. Go to the prostitute's house and bring her out along with all of her family. The men who had been spies went in and they brought out Rahab, her her mother, all of her family. And they moved her whole family to a safe place near the camp of Israel. So all the walls just fell down except one house. This one part of this huge wall, because remember Rahab lived in the wall and there's one house with a window that has a red rope, scarlet rope hanging in it. And Rahab, in the midst of all the chaos, somebody comes and knocks on the door and says, we're moving you into the family of God. The second idea we see from the text is that God rescues people with labels. He rescues people with labels. Rahab was rescued and saved by grace, not because she deserved it, but because of the undeserved favor of God on her life. In other words, if God was gonna destroy Dallas, like you heard, hey, he's gonna take out Dallas. He's gonna save one person. Who do you think he would save? Like, we'd probably go through our list and be like, man, he probably would, you know, there's probably a really nice grandma somewhere he's going to save, or like, you know, a really high priest or pastor out there, or somebody high in philanthropy that has given a lot of money. Would you choose a prostitute 
Because that's who God chose. And he rescues Rahab by grace, the same way that he still rescues people today, because God rescues people with labels. And then he moves them to the family of God, and he changes their labels. But she was saved by grace. Grace is a word Christians throw out. It's just a word that means undeserved favor. Mercy is not getting the punishment you deserve. Grace is not getting the punishment you deserve and getting something better that you don't deserve. I've said it before, my son, Crew, when he was four, I took him to his room, he, he basically had hit his sister, and I was like, you're getting a spanking. We sat down, and I decided, I'm gonna make this an object lesson for grace. I'm gonna teach you, son, right now. Father of the year. So I'll walk him through and explain, you know what, I'm gonna give you grace. Do you know what that means? It means I'm gonna hit myself, and I hit myself as hard as I could, or hard, and I'm gonna give you candy. That's grace. You don't get the punishment you deserve, and you get something amazing you don't deserve. Which kind of backfired because ever since that moment, every time he gets in trouble, he's like, please, please, I want grace, I want grace, I want grace this time to mommy, hit mommy. And it's like, whoa, okay, uh, not exactly how grace works. And, but it reflects that, hey, that is what Christians believe. They have never believed, and you may have been taught this, or you may have been raised and we went to confirmation, or you went and were taught that Christians have a relationship with God because they deserve it or they earn it or they maintain it because they do enough good things. That is a lie. That's not a Bible idea. That is a worldly idea. The belief of Christians is that it only by undeserved favor, aka the grace of God, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself so that no one can vote. The only way anybody gets a relationship is the God who rescues people with labels by grace through faith. What's faith? Faith is believing God. Trusting in him. Trusting in our sense in what Jesus did on the cross as payment for your sin. That's what Christians believe. The way you become a Christian is I believe Jesus paid for my sin on the cross. And he rose from the dead as proof for that payment. Boom. And Rahab, 1,500 years before Jesus would live, expressed, I believe you're God. You guys, they're out wandering in the forest. She's sitting in the most walled, protected city in the world, and she says, I know your God is the one true God, and I believe. And so I'm going to hide you because I believe that your God is going to do what he has promised to do. And that was a faith that saved her. So much so that multiple times Rahab is pointed to in the New Testament by New Testament writers. It's pretty astonishing when you think about it. They point to Rahab as, as much as they do so many other characters in the New Testament, where they pull back. In James chapter two, the brother of Jesus, he says, I'm gonna give you two examples of faith. I mean, it's crazy. James, the little brother of Jesus, wrote the book of James, and he pulls out and he's like, let's talk about faith. Two people I wanna talk about. Father Abraham had many sons, the father of our faith. And in James two, he talks about Abraham. And then he says, I'm gonna give you another example. You would think he would go, I don't know, David or Noah or Isaac or Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. There's a lot of people. Who does he pull? James chapter two, verse 25. In the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction that she believed and it changed her. And then I think one of my favorite ones, the hall of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 is called the Hall of Faith. Why? Because they go through, and it's basically like the Hall of Fame, only for the faith men and women in our nations or in the family of God's history. And they go through, and they name people you'd think. You, they got Moses. Yeah, of course. You don't let my people go. They got Abraham, the founder of the faith. They got Isaac and Jacob, of course. 
And then they bring up Rahab and says this, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Look at the next sentence. He's going through and he's listed all these people out and he's like, oh, so Rahab, that incredible faith that Rahab had. And then he says, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to talk about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. You got time to talk about Rahab, the prostitute, who wasn't even Jewish? You ain't got time to talk about David, the greatest king in Israel, man after God's own heart, defeated Goliath, one of the heroes. Jesus is called the son of David. But you got time to talk about Rahab? That God pursues and rescues by grace, through faith, and Rahab is seen as somebody that God comes in despite her label and uses in mighty ways. Finally, we get to, I think, what is the best part of the story, in the romantic part of the story, if you will. It says this. So Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, and her relatives who were with her in that house, because she had hidden the spies Joshua sent to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. And she lives among the Israelites, the Jewish people to this day. When they wrote the book of Joshua, Rahab was still alive. You could go see her. They said, man, there's Rahab down the street, lives in a different house, no longer a prostitute. Why do I say that? Because we're told that eventually Rahab bumps into somebody named Salmon. And Salmon... Not salmon. You're going to meet him someday if you're a Christian in heaven. He's going to be like, well, I ain't a fish, man. I'm a man. <laughs> and Salmon bumps into Rahab and he's like, ooh, girl, man, you want to go to lunch? And uh, they meet on, you know, jewishmingle.com or wherever and they hit it off. They go to lunch. And then he's like, man, I, like, I really enjoyed that. I'd like to go to They go to dinner and eventually first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes Boaz and a baby carriage. And they have a baby boy. And Salmon did what would have been unthinkable. You didn't marry prostitutes in that day and age. But Salmon was a godly man. He did what godly men do. And this is really important. It's a side note, but it's relevant to the story and it may be relevant to your story. I hear all the time of people saying, you know, I just, I feel like I've got too much baggage, too much junk in my past. A godly guy or a godly girl doesn't want anything to do with me. A godly guy or a godly girl will see you like God does. In other words, if they're a godly guy, they don't go, oh man, hey, this is all the things that's wrong with you. That's not a godly person. That's a spiritually immature person. A godly guy sees like God does. A godly girl sees like God does. How does God see? In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse eight, it says, I, the Lord, do not look at outward appearances. I look at the heart. And so if you are somebody who is walking with Jesus, you're buying, you're buying a lie if you think that, man, a godly guy would never have interest in someone like me. An ungodly guy may hold that against you, but a godly man or godly woman sees like God does. And Salmon saw like God does. And he saw this woman who, despite her past and her brokenness, had by faith come to be a part of the family of God. And he asks her out, and eventually they get married. And she becomes a part of the royal bloodline of God. 
Why do I say that? Because we're told that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of King David. That she goes from prostitute to princess in the royal family of God. In other words, if you have judgment, you think of Rahab, the prostitute, and go, man, that's so jacked up. You are talking about Jesus' great, great, great grandmother or King David's great grandmother. Like whatever the equivalent in that day and age. Like I don't know if back then they did what we do today where it's like this is my meemaw, my papa, and we just make up these weird names. It's like, and then my hee-haw, and this is my... <laughs> and whatever that was for David, if you're throwing shade at Rahab, he's like, dude, that's my great, that's my great meemaw. That's who she was. And Jesus, think about this. The Savior of the world went to the cross with the blood of a prostitute running through his veins to die for broken people because everyone is broken. And the showcase of Rahab and her story is that Jesus didn't just come for sinners. He came from sinners because that's all there is. And inside of the story, we see that he's a God who seeks after people with labels. He saves people with labels. And finally, he rewrites people's labels. And just like he took Rahab and put, took her from, hey, you were Rahab the prostitute, now you are Rahab the princess of the family of God and the royal lineage. He can do that the same to you and to me and take porn addicts like me and say, I'm gonna take you. And by surrendering, which is what she did, she decided, I'm going to surrender. I'm going to go not with the people inside of the wall. I'm going to do what's uncomfortable, and I'm going to go after the family of God. I'm going to surrender to God's way, even if it costs me, even if I'm afraid. I'm going to surrender my story. And when she did, God began to rewrite it. And he can do the same for you, same for me, like I said with me, that he has taken somebody that for years and years spent looking at pornography, and he changes the label and says, I will make you pure. He can take you as someone who's depressed, and say, I will bring about and restore the joy of salvation in your life. That's what I do. If you surrender to me, I am a label changer. I'm a God who takes things, and he takes people that were abused, and he makes them whole. He takes those who felt unwanted or one-night stands and makes them valued. Those who were bulimic and makes them healed. Alcoholic and makes them free. Those who felt unwanted, and he changes them and makes them desired. It's what he does, but it happens when you and I step into the family of God and allow Jesus and our relationship to him to be the thing that covers us. And just like with Rahab, whatever part of your story, your past, he takes labels that the world says define you, and he says, I've covered those, and I'm redefining the future that you have. I'm redefining the life. I'm redefining who you are, and those labels no longer define you because what I did on the cross now defines you, and Rahab would no longer be known as Rahab the prostitute. And I love this, and I'm about to land the plane. There's one time in all of the Bible when Rahab is mentioned, and her label is not. It's only one. Every other time, it's Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the prostitute. Except in Matthew chapter 1, 
when Matthew writes the genealogy of Jesus. And we read it. I'm going to read it again. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Not Rahab the prostitute, just Rahab. Isn't it fitting that Matthew, who lived so much of his life with a label until he met Jesus and went from Matthew the tax collector to Matthew the disciple, the author of the Bible, or one of the books of the Bible, that he would write out, and he's going to write out the lineage, and if anybody knew labels, it was him. And he writes out, and he says, his mother was Rahab. That's it. Because her connection to Jesus overshadowed the label that she carried. She's written, and that's the line of Jesus. Eventually, four verses later, it talks about Jesus, the Messiah. It's tracing up. And in so, her connection overshadowed. Her relationship with Jesus overshadowed the labels she had carried from her past, from her present, from her sin. And Matthew, distinctly, knew when you step into a relationship with Jesus, everything in your past, everything in your present, every sin in your life, it is overshadowed by Jesus and redefined and covered by him. And that is the most significant thing about you if you're in this room and you've trusted in Christ. No matter what's in your future, your past, if you're in Christ, you're a part of the family of God. And those labels don't define you. Your relationship with him does. We're told that in the story, the way that she was saved is through a scarlet rope they said, the only way we will know it's your house is if this scarlet rope runs outside of it and anyone who is inside of the house that is marked by this red rope, scarlet rope on the outside, anyone inside of that will be saved. Everyone outside of that, anyone that is not in a house that is marked by a scarlet rope will perish, will die. So make sure that the scarlet rope hangs outside, clearly a foreshadowing of Jesus just like in the Passover where the blood was covering the house. So in this scenario, where a scarlet rope, a scarlet thread representing the blood of Christ, that anyone who has this marking their life by faith in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life, will be saved. And anyone who does not have that marking, in other words, the work of what Jesus did, pouring his blood out for you on the cross, marking your life by accepting it, his payment, by faith, I believe, will perish. And that same gift has been extended to anyone who will accept it. By faith, God has given his life and extended the covering for you. You've got to accept it. That I'll never be enough. And I can face the battle and I can face the war and I can face all that life is going to throw at me, but I'll never earn a relationship with God, but I don't have to. But I do have to accept it and let the scarlet blood of Christ cover me like the scarlet rope covered her. Let me pray. Father, I pray that anyone who has never had a moment in their life where they make the decision to trust in what you did on the cross, paying for their sin, paying for past abortions, current addictions, current messed up relationships, abusive behavior, today would be the day that they would stop attempting to earn their way to you and just Say, God, I accept it. 
I accept that you died for me on that cross and that you would seek after and rewrite their story. I pray for people who candidly, no matter how hard I try to plead with them to not buy the lie that the God who's there rewrites stories and takes broken things and ashes and makes beauty out of them, that now your spirit would pierce through their heart and they would believe no matter how far they've run, no matter how far they've fallen, it is not too far for the grace and goodness of God. And they would experience and encounter you and you would, through their surrender, write beautiful marriages, restore families back together, bring healing, peace, and joy. It's what you do, it's what you've always done. And the story of Rahab showcases you came for sinners like all of us. You're greater than the labels that define us in the past. You're greater than the ones that define us right now. You're greater than it all. And we worship you now in song, amen.